Okay, uh, we are in Psalm 119. We are continuing our series through the longest chapter in your Bible. The longest chapter made up of 176 verses, and we are making headway uh, in this psalm. Slowly but surely, we are going through this, and uh, who knows when this will ever end. <laughs> It'll end in a, a couple weeks. <laughs> uh, but I am really enjoying uh, even the tediousness of this study. I, I, I think I mentioned a couple times just how uh, this psalm can feel monotonous if you just read through it quickly. And there's just the sense that David is constantly talking about the Word and and what it means to him, um, but I think as we de- dwell on the authority of Scripture and the applicability of Scripture, this is what we're going to see, and I think that that will make God's Word resonate all the more with us in our lives. And so this morning, we are in the fifth stanza. It begins with verse 33 of Psalm 119. I'm going to read this stanza for us this morning. David cries, Teach me, O Lord, the way of thy statutes, and I shall keep it unto the end. Give me understanding, and I shall keep thy law, yea, I shall observe it with my whole heart. Make me to go in the path of thy commandments, for therein do I delight. Incline my heart unto thy testimonies, and not to covetousness. Turn away mine eyes from beholding vanity, and quicken thou me in thy way. Establish thy word unto thy servant, who is devoted to thy fear. Turn away my reproach, which I fear, for thy judgments are good. Behold, I have longed after thy precepts. Quicken me in thy righteousness. I think when I was reflecting on what David is is praying here, what David is talking about here, it felt a little bit familiar. It felt a little bit familiar because I think in this stanza, this fifth stanza of Psalm 119, I think what we really find here is a threefold, a, a sort of a, three, a, a threefold prayer of assurance. Now, uh, I think what, what David is, is praying here is sort of, uh, he's, he's praying that the repentance that he experienced in the last stanza, which we looked at last week, this idea that David was repenting of, of certain uh, things and ways in his own heart, he's now praying for a sense of assurance that that repentance was real, that that repentance was, uh, was certain, that it was a real thing that he experienced. I don't know about you, but I can tell you myself that prayers of assurance are probably my most popular prayers. <laughs> I'm most often praying, God, make what I want to be real, real in my own heart. I want this, this truth that I know, this truth that I know is true, I want it to be true for me. I want it to be true in my own heart, in my own life. And I think that's what David is praying here. Make this a reality. And I think um, this is something that's very common, uh, or at least I think we think it's common amongst a lot of young adults and teens as they go and they're journeying through their faith. God, give me the assurance that I'm saved. But I think we would be naive to think that adults don't face this too, that we haven't faced this too in perhaps our elderly stages of life, that we still don't pray prayers of assurance God, make this a reality in my life. Don't just let me uh, think that this is true. Make it true for me. 
I, I think about, you know, these ideas of rededicating your life. That's just a sign that you're looking for assurance. You're looking for God to give you the certainty that your faith is real. And I think we all go through moments like that. I think we all go through seasons like that. That's, uh, I think that's part of being a Christian. That's part of being someone who is both a sinner and a saint, we might say. We crave for God's assurance. Now, this is sort of a planned digression, so it's not really a digression, but I'm going to digress a little bit because uh, I was recently reading this book called Sola, how uh, the, the five solas of the Reformation are still reforming the church. It's a book that was put out by actually some members of the seminary in which I'm attending. Um, but I, I love Reformation doctrine and history. So the history of the Reformation of the church through men like uh, Knox and Calvin and Luther and such. Those church fathers that we can really go back to who uh, stood up against the Roman church back in the 1500s. It wasn't just the 1500s, but that's predominantly when the Reformation started. But this idea of chasing and pursuing assurance is really where the whole uh, impetus for the Reformation started. And in fact, this campaign of Martin Luther's against the Roman church uh, is really a campaign for a recovery of biblical assurance of salvation. You see... I was, I was talking with a friend, a pastor friend of mine in Georgia, and that's really what he defined the Protestant Reformation as. And this friend of mine, he's a lot smarter than me. He's just a couple years older than me, and he's already a Ph.D. resident at a theological seminary. So I, I looked up to him, and I'm kind of jealous of his smarts. But anyways, that in his study of Reformation, that's what he said. It's, it's all about recovery, a recovery of biblical assurance of salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone. That's what was being recovered by these reformers, by these men who were standing up for the truth and the authority of Scripture. And just reading Luther's life, you can see this as plain as day. Now, this, there's a lot of like colloquial things that may or may not be true about Martin Luther's life. But one thing we kind of know is true is this, is that Luther, he grew up and he was told to be a lawyer. He was studying law. And then one day he was journeying home and he was almost struck by lightning. It was a very, very terrible storm on the path that he was going on. And he was almost struck by lightning. And the storm was so severe that he ended up praying and he vowed that if God were to save him in this moment, he would enter a monastery. and He would enter a religious school. He would uh, sort of betray what his father wanted him to do. And he would enter a religious school. And that's what happened. He survived. He entered an Augustinian monastery and he began to study religion. And he was zealous after this religion, zealous, so zealous after this pursuit of holiness and righteousness as he was taught it. That actually, uh, there's one story I, I read about, which I think is interesting, that he was so just captivated by this idea that he has to be holy that he would confess every single thing multiple times, such that the person, the, the priest, the father to whom he was confessing in the confessional would turn him away and say, unless you have something really grievous to confess, don't come to me and confess all these little minute things. Because he was confessing everything. He was so captivated by this idea that he has to be holy. That he has to be righteous. That he was turned away. 
He knew Martin Luther for all of his faults in that season of his life. He knew the absolute severity of God's righteousness. And in fact, that's really what also led to his absolute captivation by the righteousness of God. You see, before Martin Luther made his sort of uh, shift and transition into what we know him now, he was actually angry at this idea of the righteousness of God. This idea that, that God would make us puny humans try and be as righteous as God. How can we live up to that? That's why he was trying to confess all the time. He was looking for assurance that what he was doing was enough. But the issue was that Martin Luther's system was flawed. It was a flawed system. The system told him to pay all these penance and to do all these things, but he couldn't confess enough. He couldn't pay enough penance to quiet his soul. He was constantly restless. He was constantly looking for assurance. There was never a moment in Luther's life when he finally was able to rest, that is, until he came to study Romans and Galatians. Martin Luther's commentaries on the books of Romans and Galatians are perhaps the most renowned biblical commentaries that in all of church history, I would say. Not just on those books, but in all of the books of the Bible. In the sense that he relays such uh, profound truth there that we are still kind of feeling the effects of what Luther began to lecture on. And he began to be struck by this phrase, the righteousness of God. And in fact, I'm going to read that verse to you, which is most often referred to as sort of the spark that ignited the fire of the Reformation, if, you, if you'll allow me to say that. Romans 1.17. He reads this verse and he becomes struck by what the scriptures say. Because the scriptures say, For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith, To faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. And here, he was made to rest, not by chasing after this righteousness by which he has to live up to. He began to rest in this idea that this righteousness of God is given to him. And that's his assurance. Not the penance that he can pay, not the confessions that he can make, not the sacraments that he can take, not the things that he can do for the church, but the fact that he lives by faith in a righteousness that's given to him. That's his assurance. That's his confidence. And this is why he was so stirred up. Because he saw the church making a mockery of this doctrine of assurance in his day, and he began to speak out against it. That's what his 95 Thesis is for. That's what the Augsburg Confession is for. That's what all of his lectures and truths and doctrines and statements to uh, any council you want to go to, this is what he's going back to. The assurance of salvation, regardless of human merit, but only by grace through faith in Christ, in his and what he has done. Not through a church, not through an institution, not through any human mediator, if you remember, the, the, one of the main points and touchstones of controversy was Luther's um, sort of uh, squabble with this guy, Johann Tetzel. And Tetzel was uh, not the only one, but he was the most famous one for selling indulgences. 
So an indulgence was something by which you could give money to the church, and the church would thereby give you an indulgence, which either gave penance for you or for a family member, which would release them from purgatory. The church was selling forgiveness, selling assurance of salvation for dollars. And Luther, confronted by that just hypocrisy, he had to speak out. And he said, he said in one of his books that this monstrous doctrine of doubting God's grace passes all other monsters. He called it a monstrous doctrine to doubt this idea that grace through faith is our assurance. Not paying penance, not buying an indulgence, not saying one more confession. It was this idea that he clung to the grace of God through Christ. That's what stirred him up so much. He was resoundly biblical. And I think so ought we to be. This is true for us too. That this idea of where our assurance comes from, this speaks to us right now. 500 years later, after Luther has done what he has done to sort of shake up the church, we are still, I think, feeling the effects of that. We are still battling with our own hearts, much like Luther, chasing after assurance. And like Luther... He's an example to us in that God's word alone contains all the words of our assurance. That's where it's found. It's found in these pages. It's found in all of these books of the Bible. This is where our assurance is found. And if you're back in Psalm 119, just look at, again, all the different terms David employs for, uh, for the idea of the scriptures. He says in verse 33, statutes. And he says, give me understanding and I shall keep thy law. And he says, commandments, testimonies in verse 36. And he says, turn away mine eyes from beholding vanity and quicken thou me in thy way. Establish thy word, turn away my reproach which I fear for thy judgments. Behold, I have longed after thy precepts, quicken me in thy righteousness. He is praying for assurance. Long before Luther came onto the scene, David was feeling the same thing. That God, I know what is right, I know what is true. Give me the assurance to make this a reality in my life. And the prayer of David, I think here, and this stanza, is actually ought to be our prayer as well. Our ongoing prayer of continually praying, God, assure me of what your word says is true, of what you have said about yourself is true for me too. And that brings me to this text this morning. And so I just want to have, uh, there's just three quick lessons I think we see here in this prayer of assurance. Three quick lessons. I think in verse 33 and 34, we have a lesson about God's schooling. A lesson about God's schooling. Notice he says, teach me, O Lord, the way of thy statutes, and I shall keep it unto the end. Give me understanding, and I shall keep thy law. Yea, I shall observe it with my whole heart. He asked God, teach me. Give me understanding. Uh, Let me learn. Let me know. Give me the knowledge of your truth. School me in your word, he's basically saying. His posture here is not that of a ruler, not that of a king, not that of a sovereign, supreme uh, sort of reigner over kingdoms and nations and people. It's that of a student. He has the posture of one who is wanting to learn, of wanting to uh, know more. 
He is asking for his teacher to instruct him in the teacher's decrees. And it's only then that he would be able to keep, to observe, as he says, God's words. You see this all the time with little kids, right? You, you see them struggling with something, and you want to teach them how to do it. But no, they resist. They say, no, I can do it. And yet they're going to be there for 30 minutes when you could probably help them teach them to do it in two. <laughs> see this with Lydia. It's kind of funny, and it's kind of frustrating. But I think often that's us too, right? God, I can do this on my own. Don't teach me how to get through this season. Don't teach me how to go this certain way. I can do it on my own. And God's like, I have a better way. I can show you. I can teach you. And such is David's heart. He says, teach me. Such should be our heart. Teach me, God, your way. Teach me how to do it. How to do it better. How to respond better. How to resist uh, temptations better. Teach me how to have faith in such a more profound way. This is David's posture. This ought to be our posture too. These two verses are really prayers that echo one another, right? If you look at them and you really stop and think about what he's saying, he's basically saying the same thing twice. He says, teach me. And then in the next verse, he says, give me understanding. Notice he even repeats the same phrase. I shall keep in both verses. I shall observe. It's by God's teaching that he is led to keep and observe, to obey what God has been teaching him. And he says, I'm going to do it with all that I am, with my whole heart, unto the very end of myself. He's repeating the same prayer. He's doubling down on this idea that his assurance isn't in his own knowledge, in his own abilities, in his own uh, ways of doing things, not in his own genius or ingenuity. It's by God's teaching him. That's his assurance of uh, continually uh, being schooled in what God has given him, in God's truths, in, uh, in God's statutes, he calls them in verse 33. This is the beginning of wisdom. This is the beginning of assurance. It's a knowledge of and a distrust of our own ability and our own understanding. That's what the commentator Charles Bridges, I I, I reference his book a lot because he has a really resoundingly good commentary on this chapter. He says this, The beginning of wisdom is a consciousness of our own ignorance, a a distrust of our own understanding, and the heartfelt prayer, give me understanding. That's the foundation of the Christian life, is that we distrust our own sort of wisdom and trust in God's. Teach me, O Lord. Teach me, make me to comprehend your definite doings, your decrees, your statutes, your (laughs) law, and I shall keep it with my whole heart. Next we see a lesson about God's steering. A lesson about God's steering. Look verse 35. David prays, make me to go in the path of thy commandments, for therein do I delight. Incline my heart unto thy testimonies, and not to covetousness. Turn away mine eyes from beholding vanity, and quicken thou me in thy way. Establish thy word unto thy servant, who is devoted to thy fear. Turn away my reproach, which I fear, for thy judgments are good. A second component of God's assurance is not only God schooling us in what is true, but steering us towards the truth as well. 
As, as, as we are enveloped in God's word, I think that's what happens. God's spirit steers our lives to pursue the truth and follow his will. And again here, uh, he is praying for God's direct and divine adjustment of his life. You see that? He's, he's praying for God to take action, take active involvement to rearrange his priorities, rearrange his affections, the things that he's going after. He says, make me go, make me to go in the path of thy commandments and also incline my heart unto thy testimonies. And then notice he says, turn and turn in verses 37 and 39. And really you could make all of those verses say the same thing, which is that turn my heart from what I want to the path of thy commandments. Turn my heart away from covetousness into your testimonies. Turn away mine eyes, turn away my reproach. He's praying for God to take active involvement in his own heart and life. Steer me, direct me, make me to go in the way that I should go. He's sensitive to his own heart's natural inclinations. He's sensitive to the fact that he doesn't pursue this way in his own abilities, in his, in his own choosing. It's only after God schools him that God can steer him in the way that he should go. And otherwise, he would not go this way. He's conscious of this inability in himself. And such ought we to be. Because we are all born just like David, in the sense that we are all self-navigators. We are all self-saviors. We think that we know the better way for our lives to go, the better way that we ought to uh, do whatever it is that we are about to do. We are self-navigators, self-sufficient saviors in and of ourselves. Bridges, again, comments, the native principle of man draws him to his own self, to his own indulgence and pleasure and covetousness, assuming a thousand forms of gratifying self at the expense of love to God. That's the natural, the native principle of man. He's drawn to his own self. The reformers called this, uh, this reality in curvatus in se, which is really just man turned in on himself. That's, that's the posture of man. As we are born into this world, we are turned in on ourselves looking for what we can bring to ourselves. And that is why the gospel is so, uh, so invasive because it turns us up. It turns us away from looking at ourselves. And looking up to God and outwards to others. And this is why we have to pray for God to direct us and drive us according to his word. This ought ought to be our prayer. The prayer of David here. To continually not behold the things that would drive me away from you God. But turn my eyes, turn my heart, turn my whole being to look to you. Turn me in such a way that I'm constantly beholding you. He's praying for God's steering. Steer my heart, steer my affections, steer my life. Make me to follow you, to pursue you, to go after you. And lastly, quickly, a third lesson I think we see here. A lesson about God's sustaining. God's schooling, God's steering, and God's sustaining. Look at verse 38 again. Establish thy word, he prays, unto thy servant who is devoted to thy fear. Turn away my reproach. 
which I fear, for thy judgments are good. Behold, I have longed after thy precepts. Quicken me in thy righteousness. Here I think we really get the crux of what David is praying for. The crux of what he is requesting God for. He says, establish me. Confirm me. Establish. Settle me. Uphold me. Uphold me in your truth. Not my own, uh, inab- my own knowledge, my own strength, my own abilities. Uh, establish me, uphold me, sustain me in your truth, God. Establish thy word unto thy servant, he prays. And he says, quicken me in verse 40. Make me alive, make me t- to rise up. Sustain me according to your righteousness. Let me live by that. But I noticed this phrase, which I was so struck by. He says, turn away my reproach. He says, which I fear. Really what he's praying there for is, God, drive away the disgrace that I constantly feel. This reproach that I feel, this regret that I feel, this remorse, this this shame that's constantly with me. Drive that away. Turn it away, God. Turn it away from me. Remind me again how I will be judged in your righteousness, I think he's praying. And this resonates, right? Because David's life was full of scandal. It was full of iniquity. Yes, he was the man after God's own heart, but he was also a man just like us in the sense that he sinned and he faltered and he fell away oftentimes. And he had seasons of intense grief and hardship. I, I, I seriously doubt that David was ever truly at peace with himself after all the events that happened with Bathsheba and Uriah. Because not only did he commit adultery and have an affair, but he thought that he could cover it up by having that person murdered. Have you ever thought about that? He conspired to have the person shoved out of the way so he could get away with it, and he conspired to do that deliberately. He wasn't just an adulterer, he was a murderer. On top of that, Such is why the prophet Nathan comes to him and says, Thou art the man. You are the one who has done this. He gives him the story, right, about sheep and such. And he says, You are the one who has stolen the sheep from the shepherd. You are the one who has committed this atrocity. You are the guilty man. And that's where he repents. And he cries most often that we go back to Psalm 51. I doubt he ever got away from that past. Do you think David struggled with assurance? I think he did. I think that was a constant prayer of his life. Even to a greater degree than Martin Luther's, David's life was a continual pursuit, a chase after something that he craved. He was tormented by this past, and I think he was haunted by these, uh, these atrocities that he committed. And so here he's praying, turn them away. Turn them away, God. I don't even want to feel them. I don't even want to see them. I don't want to look at them. But God, they are haunting me. You could say they're like, they were like the ghosts of his life. He couldn't get away from these things that he had done. He was praying for assurance. God, I know the man that I am. Give me the assurance. Quicken thou me according to your righteousness. This is his prayer. And I think I wouldn't be too hasty to assume that you've had similar things you've had to pray to God for. For assurance. For confidence. There's no doubt something in your past that haunts you. 
That if you allow it, it can envelop your life like a black hole of despair and regret and shame. And oftentimes, if you let yourself sit in that too long, you will become useless. Guess what? That's the devil. If you believe in Christ as your Savior this morning, whenever you are tempted to have remorse and regret and fear over something in your past, that's Satan. That's not the Spirit. Because the devil knows he can't take away your salvation, but guess what he can do? He can make you useless in the campaign for salvation, and nothing makes us more useless than wallowing in something that has already been paid for. Than, than just sitting in the regret of something and the reproach of something that we know is already under the blood. And if he brings it back up, we have to pray like David. Turn away that reproach. God, drive away that fear, that regret, that shame, those things that I know that you have already paid for. Drive that away. Give me life. Give me assurance, not in myself, but where your righteousness is found. I I love one of my friends. He's actually a, a Lutheran speaker and pastor. And he has this great line, he says, and I love it. He says, I'm fine with you looking up the sins of my past. Just make sure you go 2,000 years back because that's where they are. They're at Golgotha. I'm fine if you look them up, but make sure you go back to where they are. They're there at that tree. That's what we tell Satan. (laughs) That's what you tell uh, the devil when he creeps in and tries to shake you, that tries to stir you and say, are you really saved? Hath God said? You tell him that. Yeah, I know. I lust and I I curse and and all those things. God has paid for those sins. Go back there, Satan. Look at where they are. They were swallowed by my Savior and they were taken by him and nailed to the tree, as it says in Colossians 2. They were nailed. The handwriting of the law against us was nailed to that tree. Satan, go back there. You have to find them there because I don't bear them anymore. This is our assurance That all of the griefs of our sins, all the horror and the atrocity that we have committed has been born and paid for by Jesus under his blood. And we cannot be overtaken by reproach and shame and sin again if we are overtaken by the place where all of that reproach and shame was born for us. Such was David's prayer. Quicken me in thy righteousness. Thy judgments are good. Like David, like Luther, as we commented on our assurance, is not in something that we attain. It's something in which we are given. It's a righteousness given to us as a gift. Completely free for us. Not free for Christ, but free for us. And this is our only true and lasting assurance. That this gift is given to us. This is our prayer. I pray that we may live according as, as heaven is satisfied. That's what righteousness is, right? It's Christ, the prince of heaven, satisfying heaven's decree of righteousness. And we live according to that decree. 
that the Prince of Heaven has satisfied the law's demands on our behalf, in our stead. And so, like David, when we are praying to God for, for turning away of reproach and fear, we also pray, turn my eyes to your truth, to your testimonies, what you have said about yourself. Turn me to, to pursue that, to look to that. That's our assurance. That's our confidence. That's the Christian life. Let us pray this morning.